Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. We are here to uh, look at the concluding verses of 1 Corinthians 12. It's been a great week, and uh, I just want to especially share my gratitude for all of you uh, just coming to these times. And uh, I want to thank uh, the camp for their always uh, graciousness to us and my family. Um, our family um, has been blessed just beyond anything we can describe with, uh, with Camp Syker. Uh, 26 years ago, first time I came here, and uh, it's been from the very first moment we walked on these grounds, uh, the embrace and the love and the sense of the Holy Spirit in this place has been something, something pretty special to our family. So again, I want to thank everyone and thank the camp and say uh, these are great days, aren't they? Wonderful days. So uh, next year, we will, uh, my family and I, we're, we're scheduled to be a hollow rock, not that other camp. The other Nazarene camp, we're scheduled, uh, the other holiness camp, we're scheduled to be at Hollow Rock next year, uh, so we'll, we'll get to be here on Monday, that first Monday uh, the, of Syker, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll make sure we get here as, as soon as possible. So uh, anyway, thank you for, thank you again, let me begin with some prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you uh, beyond our words, We're, we're kind of speechless sometimes before you, but just our hearts are full, and uh, our hearts overwhel are overwhelmed with thanks for this place and these people and your presence here among us. It's been sweet, um, and as we come to this day, it's, it's a bittersweet day because uh, it's time to go home, but we get to take with us what you've done in our lives. We get to take you with us. You're the same one that has been here with us as the same one that goes home with us. And Jesus, you are that consistency. You are, you are our constant in this transition that we now make. And all the ones that will take place during this year, you are our constant. And so today, um, I, I pray and ask that your spirit would, would make you known even more clearly, do something even further we sit with anticipation, we come to the morning service, the final service, with anticipation that uh, you will do something in us that uh, is a lasting fruit as we go from this place before we join again here or in heaven. And we love you today, and I just thank you and pray that each one, even those within the tabernacle, those up in the youth, the children's, the, the nursery, and those that are packing, may there be a sense of even your moving among all of us this day. Bless those who are working so hard to prepare a wonderful meal and uh, all those who are, are, have their hands about many chores today. We love when you pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. All right, so looking at the uh, end of chapter 12, it's been a great, great life-changing study for me as God's Word always is. And so as we come to the end, we're coming to the end of a section, uh, in case you're just joining us. Uh, in chapter 12, Paul has turned to a new subject in his, uh, in his uh, conversation with the Corinthians. They had written him a letter. Of course, he had been there with them uh, about a few years earlier on his missionary journey, started the church there, spent a year and a half. I always like that about Paul, by the way. I like to tell our students he is no hit-and-run evangelist. You know, I was with an evangelist recently not long ago, and they said, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just great to preach the word and get out of town, right? So that wasn't Paul. Paul uh, was all about the relationship with the people, with the people. He got to have relationship with them on an ongoing basis. Part of that was, he did that in a number of ways, by the way. He repeat visits. He went back to the same churches, you know, many times. The churches in Galatia, he went back to at least we know of four times, four times at those churches. Um, and then, of course, he stayed long periods of time. In Corinth, he stayed a year and a half. Ephesus was like two to three years, depending on estimates. That's a long time. You know, two years is a long time. to. You know, we, we love it at Camp Syker. Anybody, you know, want to keep it up for two years? Or I don't know. He stayed long periods of time. He wrote these letters, and he sent people like Timothy or others, to in his place. So Paul was really into this relationship. So anyway, he, he started this church a few years prior. He goes on with his other missionary journeys, but he, he keeps in, he's doing that keeping in touch thing with them through letters and visits. 
And he gets this letter from them saying, hey, Paul, we have these problems in the church. Surprise, surprise. This, 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 this. We got all these issues in the church. So what should we do about it? What they're expecting in return is a manual. They're expecting a church manual in return. Paul, if you could just send us a three-ring binder with color-coded um, tabs that would tell us every situation, this is the a solution to this. So he writes this letter. He's addressing all the problems, but not the way they think. He basically writes the letter and says, Jesus is the answer to this. So surrender to him. Surrender your pride. Let him live in you and through you. That's the solution. So he one by one picks off not maybe a good word, one by one he addresses all those issues that they raised, but every time he's taking this principle of Jesus in you and through you, you're not your own, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, you're his vessel. He makes that even more clear in his second letter to them, you know, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So one by one he takes, addresses that. So, when he, so always the, the, one of the signals of a new subject is now concerning. So chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. Problem in the church, they had been, some of them, very cliquish in the church. They'd been making one spiritual gift the gift instead of recognizing the body of Christ is him working in us and through us and it's, it's a, in a varied way. And so first 11 verses talks about gifts of the Spirit, Main ideas are the focus is on Jesus always. Don't worry about what gift of the Spirit you have. It's not yours anyway. It's His and Him working through you. So be sourced in Him. Focus on Him and be sourced in Him, and He'll do the rest. What a relief, we say. Amen? What a relief. That, that works in every area of life, by the way. That works not only in the church and the body of Christ. It works as being a dad, too. Just surrender to him and respond to him with your whole heart, and he'll work in you and through you and handle everything. That works in every situation in life. Gifts of the Spirit. So then he moves on and says, hey, if we're doing that, if we're allowing him to work in us and through us, that's going to, he is going to produce out of a bunch of people like us, a bunch of just people just like us, he's going to produce the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not just a gathering of people. It is a supernatural activity of God through people. Just because a, a group of people gathers at a building on a Sunday or on a Wednesday night doesn't make them the church, right? Amen? The church is a bunch of people that are so surrendered to him and responding to him. He's working in them and through them. And in that, there's a supernatural, exponential dynamic that takes place among that group. That's the church. That's the body of Christ. So he spends verses 12 through 26 talking about that body. It has two aspects to it. First of all, we're all members individually, right? No cookie cutters, right? I mean, I really want to be like Tab Beachler. I'm trying, but I'm never going to be Tab Beachler. I'm never going to be that good looking and talented and all that kind of stuff. So, but thank God, there's no cookie cutters. God shaped each one of us and placed each one of us in the body uniquely, amen? So it's members individually, yet don't get so carried away, he says, with your individuality that you forget we are one body. So he's been emphasizing that. Now, after discussing that, before he goes on to continuing this discussion, this is a three-chapter discussion on spiritual gifts. Chapter 12, he's laying out these principles Chapter 14, he's going to come back to the whole thing of the languages, the, the use of the gift of languages. By the way, he would say that it is a legitimate gift in the body of Christ. It is a legitimate gift in the body of Christ, so don't throw it out. Just because they've misused it, don't throw it out. It is a legitimate gift in the body of Christ. He does list it last, haha, you know, just to kind of poke at them a little bit. But it, is, it can be used properly. So chapter 14, he's going to go on and discuss what are the proper guidelines. We'll have to save that for another study because I haven't got to it yet. Anyway, so chapter 14 is the proper use of that gift within some biblical guidelines because, as he says in chapter 14, verse 23, God is not a God of confusion, right? God is a God of order, amen? God's a God of order, spiritual order. So he, he lays out very clearly the principles of order in the church, especially with that particular gift. And then tucked in the middle is a chapter you never heard of, chapter 13, which is all about this love. That's the whole tone of everything that, that is to take place in, in the body of Christ. So before, before he goes on to those, he ends 
He ends in verses 27 through 31 with a very strong, direct address to the church. Okay, we've talked about these principles we, we just went over, about the gifts of the Spirit, the body of Christ. Now, whew, big breath. Now he just kind of gently takes them by the shoulders. He does that a lot in this letter, by the way. He kind of gently takes them by the shoulders, because remember, they're kind of the problem child, this church. He kind of gently takes them by the shoulders, just like I need, and says, okay, let me see if, if you got this. Let me, let me see if you heard me. You know, let, let's, let's go over this again. And it's this very strong, direct address. I don't know about you, I need that a lot. Anybody ever need to be talked to straight? Like just, because sometimes I'm just dense, or I'm just, more often I'm distracted. You know, I think it's I saw I think it's Ralph Wagner who's famous for pointing out squirrel or whatever. So uh, is that right? So I get distracted easily. So a lot of times I really need God in my life, and that's why we come to church and have Bible studies and revival services. Because a lot of times I need God to take me by the shoulders gently and say, "You got this, right? You're listening." Not in a, you know, smack, smack, hard way, but just you're listening. So that's what he's doing. So let's read that. He says this now. In conclusion, if anyone speaks in a tongue, I'm sorry, that was chapter 14, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ. Okay, come on, review now. You are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Notice again, that's last. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have gifts of healings, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the best gifts. And then the last statement I would save as an introduction to our 1 Corinthians 13 study that we may get to share another time. I show you a more excellent way, and he leads right into chapter 13. But he ends with that statement then, yet earnestly desire those best gifts. So what's happening in verses 27 through 31 is now this is the so what of the discussion. We've been talking, he says, for all this chapter about these gifts of the Spirit, about the body of Christ, but inquiring minds want to know. I mean, the good, you know, after, after a camp meeting like this and all the truth that we've heard, there ought to be a, so what does it mean for my life? When I go back, actually, we'll, we'll be home in Tennessee tonight. It'll be quite late, you know. We kind of take forever, really, getting off the grounds. Mostly we're just delaying because we love it, right? But uh, we'll be back home at, uh, you know, this week, and then many of us will be back in our churches next week. Next Sunday we'll be back in our churches. There ought to be a so what of Camp Syker. I don't mean that badly. I mean there ought to be a what we've heard here and received here we get to take back with us, and now Jesus gets to put that into practice in our lives when we go home. Amen? So this is the so what. So Back to this original question of, he kind of goes back to their original question about languages, but what he's done, you see, is over and over again in this letter, he's not just addressing their question without basing it on truth. All practicality in the Christian life flows out of truth. We want to base our lives in the truth and then let Jesus handle and work out the practicality based in truth. Does that that make sense? Oswald Chambers has this statement he uses several times. If you like Oswald Chambers, um, and anybody like Oswald Chambers? I'm a big Oswald Chambers fan. And, and if there's a devotional, you know, if, if, you're gonna, if you have to pick one devotional to use in your lifetime, please sometime read through my utmost for his highest. I mean, just one of the best things you could ever do. Some people like to read it over and over like me. But there's a statement Chambers likes to use. It's, it's the statement of the Christian life. God is... He's working out what he's worked in. He's working out what he's worked in. In other words, the truth he's put in my life and in my heart. Now he spends the rest of my life working out in my, in my living experience what he's worked in into my heart. 
a life based on truth. That's why Paul, in his letters, he's always dealing with truth, and he says, like Ephesians, for example, here's the truth for three chapters. Here's the truth. Now, how should we live? And if, you, if all you do is go to Ephesians 4 through 6 and say, oh, this is a how-to manual of how to, miss the, how to lead the Christian life, you've missed it because the how-to is, is flowed out of the, the truth of the first three chapters, right? So we constantly in our lives, I mean, in the church all the time, we're, we're in jeopardy of we're, we're big into how-tos. You know what I mean? Always, always the how-tos. How do we grow our church? How do I do this? How do I, how do I, how do I? And you, I think you know the Christian life, the question of the Christian life is not so much a how as it is a who. Just switch the letters around. What does he want to do in me? So again, what he's doing here is practicality. So he leads off, notice in verse 27, as he, as he wraps this summary up, he leads off with a very strong statement about identity. Look, look at the statement. You are the body of Christ. I want you to remember, he says, as we, as we wrap up this discussion, this part at least, I want you to remember who you are. Maybe one of the enduring images of Camp Syker that you can take home with you is that bell and Larry the Cucumber, right? So, uh, especially the bell. Or maybe we could actually have a picture of Larry with the bell. I don't know, something like that. Who you are. That's really, it's really important. You, you know this whole thing of identity, the, the scripture talks a lot about identity, right? The scripture really spends a lot of time talking about, you know, he, he says, so that's, that's why he says you are. He may, it's very strong. The you are in the Greek is emphatic. You are. You are. Are, Paul would say strongly to the Corinthians. Don't forget who you are, the body of Christ. This is who you are. In the Greek, hume uh, uh, says the, uh, it, it's the you, it's the, it's the pronoun. Um, and then este is, is the verb, you know, it's, it's the second person plural form of are. Now, I don't know if any, does anybody here speak Spanish? Anybody speak Spanish? Of course. So um, in Spanish, for example, um, if anybody speaks most foreign languages, I hope you get this all right. You can say a, a verb, you can just say the verb, and the pronoun is the ending that you put onto the verb determines what the pronoun is. So um, let's think of a good example this morning. Um, uh, I could say, yo tengo hambre, means I am hungry. So the o, on the, you know, the o on the end is kind of, I hope I'm not butchering this. The O on the end means, uh, that, 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 that means I. Now I could say, um, TNA, Andre, which he always is, by the way. So that means he is hungry. See, a different ending means a different pronoun, okay? So, is that true? It is true. Okay, so. <laughs> Feed the song of angels. Sorry, just kidding. So what, you don't have to use a pronoun besides the verb and its ending, right? The verb itself and the ending of the verb tell you what the pronoun is, if that makes sense. Now, when you use the pronoun additionally, you're emphasizing. So Paul could have just said este, and it, it would have got across the idea that you are. But he puts the pronoun also on the beginning, humes este, in other words, you are. Very emphatic. You could just hear it in his voice, the way he's saying it. You are the emphasis of the throne. Actually, also in the Greek, word order is emphatic. And in this sentence, the, the words you are are placed in a place in the sentence that makes it kind of also kind of a shout out, you are. And it's also in the present tense, which is emphasizing you are. You are now. This is what you are always. This is who you are. Does that make sense, everybody? It's an emphatic statement of identity. Why is that such a big deal? I think we know that the New Testament talks a lot about this. We don't have time to go into all these this morning, but think of all the times. If you can turn to two passages, in fact, we won't, we won't spend a lot of time on it, but turn to Romans 8 for just a moment. I should have marked these all. Turn to Romans 8 for just a moment. There's a lot of a lot of material, just mark these passages, a lot of material in that passage, Romans 8, 9 through 17, just look through it, describing who you are. Look through it. 
Look at Romans 8 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have Christ, the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He goes on to talk about all this life in the spirit, and this is who, and as a believer in Christ, this is who you are. This isn't Paul's idea. This isn't like uh, wishful thinking. This is what God's word says about who you are. Another great passage is in that first chapter of Ephesians. If you turn over to it and just glance through it sometime, look at those. Just If, if you're ever kind of just hearing doubts and you're ever being bombarded by negative thoughts, turn to some of these passages in scripture and start reading through it and even put your own name in there. This is who I am in Christ. Look at Ephesians 1, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and, and holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of the will. And on and on it goes through that incredible passage in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 about who you are. You know, it's one of the major strategies of the enemy, right? To confuse us about our identity. Anybody hearing any talk these days about identity? How do I identify, right? It's all for the enemy, isn't it? Right, it's all the enemy. Instead of what God's word says about us, it's man's ideas about who I am. And I can have my own idea or this is how I identify instead of saying this is who God says I am. So I don't know, I'm not interested. By the way, I'm not even smart enough to figure out who I am. So uh, I, gotta, I gotta trust in God to define who I am. Thus his word. So this whole idea of identity is important because, and, and by the way, one of the best books I've ever read in my life on some of this stuff about spiritual battle is uh, Neil Anderson. Um, he's not Wesleyan, but great truth in that book about, because I like his approach to spiritual warfare that says it's always a truth battle. This, some, a lot of what I learned about spiritual warfare came from him and the idea of the truth battle you know, a lot of people talk about, I'm going to give Satan a black eye. Well, that doesn't work. That doesn't work in spiritual battle. Because the spiritual battle is always a truth battle. And so the answer to spiritual warfare and all the things we're plagued with and we're in bondage over so many times are all lies. And so the answer to deception is to get back to the truth and who I am in Christ. And Neil Anderson does a great, great job at walking through that. If, if, and Trina and I have used it. Um, uh, many, many times in counseling, our own helped us, and then uh, many, many times just seeing people set free from, from some things in their lives. But anyway, this whole idea of identity, it matters because you end up, all of us will end up living out, back to practicality out of the truth, your truth, all of us will live out what we believe about who we are. Isn't that true? If a kid is told something enough times growing up, is it not often true that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because if he starts to believe it, then that becomes his reality and he'll just say, well, that's what I am, and he starts living that way. Is that, is that true to anybody? Right? My not my favorite. One example of that is, and I hope I don't step on any toes here, but it is the last day, so... But in our public school systems, I think you know over the last several decades, there's a strong teaching on evolution. Okay, not a biblical view of our origins and who we are, but evolution. And so one of the basic messages, underlying messages of evolution that children are told is, you are an animal. Right? That's what evolution says. You're just an evolved animal. So... Over the last several decades, and especially in the last decade, how are children increasingly behaving in our schools? Anybody been in a public school lately? I substitute taught for a number of years before I online taught in our public schools in Tennessee. 
Anyway, do you know how children are increasingly acting in our public schools in these days? Like animals. Is it not true that we act out what we think our identity is and what we're told? So that's why Paul is so strong on this. And so what he's trying to say as this chapter concludes is, you're the body of Christ. This is who you are. Not your paganism that you came out of, not what the world says, not what we talked yesterday about values and vision, not how the world sees you, not what the worldly values are. Listen, in Christ, you are the body of Christ. So let's live like that, amen? Let's live it out. Come on, Corinthians. <laughs> Come on, guys. Let's start living this out in our lives. I like sidewalk prophets. They sing a song called, I want to live like that. I think the song's actually live like that. I misquoted. Sometimes I think, what will people say of me when I'm only just a memory, when I'm home where my soul belongs? Was I love when no one else would show up? Was I Jesus to the least of those? Was my worship more than just a song? I want to live like that. And give it all I have so that everything I say and do points to you. If love is who I am, then this is where I stand, recklessly abandoned, never holding back. I want to live like that. I want to live like that. I think Paul wrote those and they rediscovered them uh, 2,000 years later. But anyway, that's the message, folks. You are the body of Christ, let's live like that. So really and practically now, in these closing verses, what does that look like? What does it look like to live like that? Well, one of the strong notions about how it looks like to live this out, and this is, he's now beginning to transition kind of towards chapter 14, so keep that in mind here, right? If, it, if it's a little confusing, keep in mind that this is, this is, in, in these documents, there were no chapters and verses yet when, when they wrote them. We, we put those in later so preachers could tell you where to turn in your Bible, right? So this was one letter, and he's moving now towards chapter 14. So one of the concepts of how this looks in the body of Christ is the concept of order. Order. God is a God of order, Amen. Our God is not the God of confusion, he says in 1423, but of peace. Our God is not a God of confusion. Our God is an orderly God. And that, 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 is, a, that is a concept that Paul takes. And, and many of the issues that he's dealing with in these letters have to do with, you know, listen, you guys are still acting like the world, but God operates in a concept of order. The whole thing in chapter 11, one chapter earlier about the Lord's Supper was all about him bringing, you know, how does Jesus want to live in us and through us? And it's not chaos, because we're, when we're not under authority, it's chaos. And so this is a big theme that he's addressing. So one of the ways we see that is, is in verse 28. He uses this word, God has appointed. Now that's one of the Greek words you already know. You've already heard it here earlier this week. It's the Greek word, tithemi. Say it with me. Tithemi. Nice and loud. Tithemi. Tithemi, we learned earlier this week, was the idea of um, it's that thing of placing something carefully. The two meanings were like in military strategy, like the military board game. It's when you strategically place these things in a very careful way on the board. And that's what God has done with us in the body of Christ. You're here this week by divine appointment. You go back to your church this week, this week by divine appointment. You've been carefully placed. He has a place for you. He has something he wants to do through you there. It also means the idea of value, something of great, tremendous value. So one thing he's getting at here is, you know, guys, it's not about seeking after positions and titles. <clears throat> it's simply about what he wants to do in us. One, one of the other places he makes that same point, you don't have to turn to this, but in Ephesians 4, he makes that, that point as well. In Ephesians 4, that well-known passage in uh, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, and a lot of people make a strong uh, a point about verse 11 where it's, uh, in fact, there's a whole new uh, 
There's a whole new movement these days that's really making a, a, a big uh, kind of shout out about Ephesians 4.11 and these different, they call it the five-fold ministry. You know, God gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some teachers, some teachers, and it's back to the same thing of spiritual gifts of some people walking around going, which am I? Which am I? I want to know which one I am, you know, kind of thing. And again, same, same point here. It's all focus because the only purpose of all of those is what? To build up the body. If you go on to read those, those verses in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, the whole point of God even appointing people to these certain roles is not for the sake of me having a role. I really need a role, God. What's my job? What do I put on my business card, you know? I want to have a cool placard on my desk, John Junman evangelist or whatever. I don't know. He's saying it's not about that, Ephesians 4. It's not about that. The only purpose is that so the body of Christ is built up. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him. See the focus on him again? Him who is the head, from whom the whole body is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causing the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. It's all about the whole purpose of anything God does in the body is not for me to have a role, it's not for me to feel, you know, I've got this big deal, it's, it's not, you know, me having an identity, it's, it's, it's for the purpose of the body being built up. And that's back to what he says in chapter 12 we looked at yesterday about mutuality. It's all about this care for one another all the time. So again, it's not about my role. That's why when he lists the things that he does in verse 28, notice that he does this really unique thing. He, he, this is very unique. He doesn't do this any other place. When he lists these different like ministries or calls the ministry or different roles in the body, apostles, prophets, teachers, gifts of healing, these different gifts, administration, notice he uses numbers for the first few. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. He uses numbers. He say, why, why, why is he doing that? The message is, again, this idea of order. God wants to establish godly order in his body. God's a God of order. And that's what leads into chapter 14. And chapter 14, he's going to continue this discussion about there's order in the body. This is, God does things in an orderly way. He, he gives structure. He appoints people to certain roles. And it's all that concept of God has called all of us. It's the strong concept Paul has about spiritual authority. He's called us all to be under spiritual authority, Right? That's another life-changing book for me, by the way. I keep recommending all these books, and you can't see this one very well, but it's called um, Spiritual Authority by Watchman Nee. I mean, another one I would strongly recommend. That was, that was a life-changing book for me to give, the spiritual, to give the biblical basis about how we are all to be under authority in our lives and what my attitude is towards authority. Anybody, anybody have a good attitude towards authority in your life? Yeah, five of us, good. It's important for me to have God's attitude towards God has placed me under authority and my attitude towards authority is to submit to the authority as unto the Lord. And say, I may not always agree with that authority, but that's who God has placed as the authority at this time in my life and Jesus give me a right heart and attitude towards that. So again, he's getting at, he's getting on all these concepts and the, and the message of chapter 14 that he's getting into is again this idea of edification of the body. It's not about me, it's about the body. So looking for repetition all these times, I think it's six times in the chapter, chapter 14, he uses the word over and over again, edification, edification. Um, the most clear one is in chapter 14, verse 26, the final, final phrase, let all things in the body of Christ be done for edification. So I know it's confusing, but... He's trying to answer this question. Folks, God has established order in his body. He calls certain people to certain roles. He, he gifts people in certain ways. He puts us in different places in the body of Christ. But again, what's the purpose of it all? For me to have a job, right? For me to have a business card. For me to have a placard on my desk. No, what's the purpose of it all? It's all for the sake of the body, not for me. Make sense? That's why chapter 13 is stuck in the middle here. 
it's all about love and it's all about others and never about me. Now, God loves me, no doubt. God cares about me. But everything he does in me is always for the sake of others, not just for me. So this constant message he's coming back to. So again, back to the main question, back to the main point he's trying to make. Not title, not position. It's why he asks these kind of rhetorical questions in verses 29 and 30. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret tongues? And, and what he's trying to get at here is, come on, Corinthians... Don't be so focused on where he's placed you. Be focused on him. Don't worry about what your role is. Don't worry about what your job is. Don't worry about what, what your thing is. Because it's not about you, it's about the whole. Boy, that would revolutionize my life, wouldn't it? If I could just walk into every situation saying, Jesus, thank you, it's not about me here. How, how do you want to minister? And really that... That idea is strong. I'm starting to wrap up here. But if you look um, there in verse 27, I don't know what your translation says, but in verse 47, you are the body of Christ and members individually. I don't know how your translation says it at the end of verse 27. But in the Greek, there's an interesting phrase. It's ekmerus. And that same phrase shows up only, only, the only other place it shows up in Scripture is in, is in chapter 13, the next chapter, and it shows up three times. And if you look in chapter 13 at those, at those references, chapter 13, verse 9, 10, and 12, in those cases it's translated in part, in part, in part. Uh, chapter 13, verse 9, for, for now we know in part. Chapter 10 but that which is uh, perfect has come. That which is in part will be done away with. Chapter 13, verse 12. Um, now I know in part, in part. That's the same phrase that's used actually at the end here of chapter 12, verse 27. You are the body of Christ and members in part. It's interesting in the Greek that that is a, it's, it's a phrase in Greek that has to do with music and melody and it almost conveys the idea like an orchestra. Like it's almost like he's saying to this church, you guys, some of you are the violinist and you're treating it like the violinist is the, everybody knows the violin is the most important part of the orchestra. Or some of you over here and you're playing your clarinet and say everybody knows the clarinet is the most important part of the orchestra. And he's saying, don't you guys realize that each of you are an important part of this orchestra or this body, but not the whole? Would you let Jesus just kind of make you content and give you a contentment in the part that he's given you instead of trying to make that the most important thing or that the whole thing? Does that make sense? I have to confess that um, that's not always the easy thing to do. Sometimes, like, have you ever wanted a different part than what God gave you? Have you ever, like, God placed you in something and it's kind of like this is how he's working through me here or this is kind of what he's giving me. This is the ministry that I want to do through you in this place. And you're kind of going, I don't know, God, I, I don't, that looks better. You ever have that? When I was... Um, in junior high school, the reason I put this up here, and I'll start to finish, the reason I put this up here is because in, in my, um, my, my junior high school never had a band before, and they started a band in, in my junior high. I was going into sixth grade, and uh, they were starting this band brand new, so um, they, they were going to organize. So what they did is they brought each one of us in and kind of evaluated us. Now, you need to know, every kid in my sixth grade class Everybody, including myself, there was one instrument we wanted to play, the saxophone. Because saxophones are cool, aren't they? Everybody agree? Saxophones are cool. Saxophones are cool. So everybody I knew, including myself, wanted to play saxophone. So we go in there, and they, 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 tried, to like, they tried to like almost pretend like we were going to get to like choose what we played. So they kind of like humored us. 
Like, what do you want to play? What are you interested in? Saxophone? Oh, that's nice. So anyway, they value it. So anyway, they come back and they, they end up telling you which instrument you're going to get to play. So what they chose for me is trombone. And they made up some lame excuse about it. It's because you have an overbite, and so a woodwind instrument won't be good for you because, you know, woodwind instrument's going to go into your teeth. You already have an overbite. And what I really think is they saw this, they saw the tall kid with the long arms, and they said, trombone, what it is. And honestly, I'm still kind of bitter about it to this day, but I'm, I'm trying to recover. And so I want you to know that I dutifully played the trombone in my school band for two months. <laughs> And I quit because I said, this is stupid. This is dumb. I want to play saxophone. I don't want to play trombone. Trombone is dumb. Saxophones, that kind of sounds like the Corinthians. There's only one that is the cool one. There's only one gift that is the one that everybody wants to do. There's only one that's really the in, and the rest of it's kind of lame. I don't, I don't want to play trombone. Trombone's stupid. That's kind of lame. That's, I hope nobody plays a trombone here, by the way. Uh, Gary. Wouldn't it have been something to say, what do, you, what do you have for me, God? And, and if nothing else makes sense out of this whole discussion that he's trying to end this chapter on, I know it's kind of complex because he's trying to move towards chapter 14, but if nothing else makes sense, maybe, maybe leave you with this. What if my attitude was, Jesus, wherever you need me in the body, that's where I am? Whatever, Jesus. Do you need somebody to play trombone? <laughs> or whatever the uncoolest instrument is, you can count me in. Jesus, where, where is it in the body that you just need some? Where is it that you want to work? Where, where can you use my hands? Where can you use me? And, and because, Jesus, my purpose is not to have a business card, be cool, my thing, my placard, my, it's not about me, it's about the body. And Jesus, I can be so lost in you and my identity is in you, not in what I do. My identity is in you. So Jesus, you can do through me whatever you want to do because it doesn't, my identity is constantly in you. Make sense? So place me wherever you need me. Wouldn't that be amazing? And the suggestion, what if, what if a whole church, those of you who are pastors can relate to this. What would you, what would, how could God answer a prayer? Can you imagine a whole church that would say that? Can you imagine a whole church on a Sunday morning going, Pastor, where do you need me? Where do you need me? Where do you need me? Wouldn't that be amazing at our churches here at camp? Wouldn't that be amazing back at our churches this next week, this next year? Where do you need me, Jesus? Not about my position, not about my title, not about my identity, not about my name in the bulletin, not about the credit that I get, not about he got that and I didn't, not about I wish I had that, I wish I could do, I wish I could be like, no, no, you, you, you are going, the point of this chapter is it is you and your calling, it is you sourcing it, it is you working through me, I don't even have to pick, but I am available to you and my identity is in you so I can be secure and content and joyful in where you've placed me. And wouldn't it be something if, if something could happen among us that when each of us is willing to, so to speak, play the instrument that God has chosen for us and, and it's, really, it's, uh, it's him doing it through us, so that's why I say, so to speak, wouldn't it be something if each of us was willing to play the instrument or be where God chose us to be, would there not be a beautiful music melody that would take place in our body. Everybody just, because there's something amazing about an orchestra that just, that mix of the beauty, you know. In truth, it wouldn't have been a very good band with all saxophones, right? But I couldn't see that when I was 12 years old. And in truth, it would not be a very appealing or effective body of Christ if everybody was one thing. But there's a beautiful music in the surrender of things. So you are the body of Christ. Let me leave you with two things. He makes this statement to end it all. So therefore, church family, let's earnestly desire, not a position, let's earnestly desire, not some gift, 
Let's earnestly desire not some thing that I get to do. Let's earnestly desire the best gifts. What do we mean by that? I have to confess to you, I don't fully understand that statement. I do know what leads into chapter 13. And so I do know that what he's talking about is not what we do, it's what he does. So earnestly desire the best things of what he can do. Earnestly desire his best. Notice two things about that statement. When he says the best gifts, we're not exactly clear what, when he says earnestly desire the best gifts. Some people speculate he's, he's going to answer that through chapter 13, faith, hope, and love. The thing that I like about that phrase is the word best. It's the word in Greek, megas, mega. Mega. Big, great, tall. These are possible meanings. Big, great, tall, vast, spacious, high, wide, great, strong, loud. In, in short, what he's inviting them to is all that he is in you. Would you just so desire all that he can be in our lives? Would we just desire all that he can do in us? Because when it's up to us, it's so piddly. When it's up to us, it's so small. I get focused on such small things sometimes in my life and ministry. I get so focused just down here. And he's saying, would you just desire and be open to this amazing awesomeness of what Jesus can do. Because listen, when you, you can't see it. It doesn't make sense logically. But when you surrender and let Jesus work through you somewhere, he does something you could never in a million years anticipate. You know? Just watch him. Try him. Okay. I'll play the stupid trombone. But in the surrender with a right heart, just watch what God does with that, that you can never, and sometime later you'll say, why did I ever think saxophone? <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, for letting me play trombone. <laughs> so desire the best. Secondly, the second thing I want you to notice about that phrase is he says, earnestly desire the Greek word zelao is the, the Greek word from which we derive the English word zealous. Present active imperative, do this always. Earnestly, passionately desire what he has for you. Not a job, not a calling, not a ministry, not a thing. Earnestly desire and go after him. That's the church. Wouldn't it be something that our constant invitation and admonition is, I, I encourage you to go back to your church and be a seeker. I encourage you to go back to your church and be the one that comes to service next Sunday morning. I know it's not Syker. I know that. Some of us are going back to our churches and going, oh, Syker. <laughs> this ain't Syker. We're not in Syker anymore, Dorothy, you know. But go back to your church and be a seeker and watch what Jesus does in your life over this next year. Earnestly desire. There's no room, Paul says as he finishes this chapter in this section, there's no room for the pursuit of title, position, ministry, appearances. Jesus can replace our hunger for those things with a hunger for simply him, him and him alone. That's the message. That's the overriding message of this chapter, to desire him and him alone. You want to be the church, he says? Let him give us his godly order. Let him place me where he wants me. Let it be about love and edification and him working in and through us. Earnestly seek him. Don't, don't, don't aim down here, Paul says. Hey, all this ministry's good, church is good, gifts of the Spirit good, none of this is bad, but listen, we can spend our whole lives being so focused down here, we miss what it's really all about, and that's him, so aim high. Don't spend your life just kind of seeking after this, no matter how good it is. Aim high and be passionately seeking after him in your life in all ways. Remember the song that you've heard singing, playing as you come in in the mornings? Make it count. Leave a mark. Build a name. This is what the world says. The world says, make it count. Leave a mark. Build a name for yourself. Dream your dreams. Chase your heart above all else. Make a name the world remembers. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, the world says. 
But all an empty world can sell is empty dreams. I got lost in the light when it was up to me to make a name the world remembers. But Jesus is the only name to remember. And I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. And I, I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him. Only Jesus. Paul wrote that too. Casting Crowns just discovered it recently. One more. So would you, in your life, let that be your pursuit as we leave this place? I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me. Only Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to thank you again for your graciousness to us. Please uh, help us, please work in us as we go back to real life. We're going to be cooking our own meals and going to jobs and going to churches and raising families and in our communities. And we're going to miss this place for the next about 50 or 51 weeks. But Jesus, thank you that what's here is you. And that's the you that goes back with us uh, tonight or tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday. Would you work in our hearts even more this year with all our hearts focused on you and respond to you? And may it be that it's not about anymore leaving a legacy or people remembering us, but only Jesus. Thank you that we are members individually and for the beauty and amazing thing of that, each one, what you've called us to, but thank you that we are one body. And may you do something exponentially through us in these days, in, the, in these days of a needy world, overwhelming need in our, in, our, in our surrounding area these days to minister and show Jesus. We love you once again, we say, and we pray, prepare our hearts for this morning service to have a, a glorious closing time together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, everybody, and thank you. And we'll see you shortly for service, 11 o'clock, I believe, right? 11 o'clock for service. So we'll see you shortly. Thank you all.